as we try to finish uh, this Sunday and next Sunday the section on the second coming of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians, uh, we will then take a breather and return to the last section, uh, which is a series of exhortations. Uh, we'll wait till I'm back from my sabbatical, God willing, in October uh, to look at that new section. Uh, once a teacher, always a teacher. Uh, you can't uh, start a new section before the summer holidays. And just as a recap tonight of what this section is about, from chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 11, Paul is correcting uh, misconceptions about the return of Jesus Christ. And he's doing two things. First, in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, he's comforting the Thessalonians, especially those who had lost loved ones, because they thought that those who had died, fallen asleep, were going to miss out in the second coming. So he's comforting those. And then what we've been looking at in chapter 5 is he is giving hope uh, to those who are left behind because they are apprehensive about that great and terrible day of the Lord. They're worried about judgments. And Paul says, you don't need to worry about the day of judgment. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, you've got everything to worry about. We're to fear the Lord, but that fear is healthy. It's reverential, yes, but it's also childlike fear. There is no torment and distress when there is the true fear of the Lord. So that's what Paul is seeking to do here. And he's telling them, don't get obsessed about times and seasons. Don't start studying charts to try and pinpoint the dates of the second coming. No, live in such a way as if he's going to come back any time. Be ready. And he talks about being alert. We're not children of the night, we're children of the day. And we're to be uh, clothed properly. We're not to be in our pajamas spiritually. Like some people, they spend all day in their pajamas, don't they, these days? Well, spiritually, we're to be dressed in that breastplate of faith and love, which is protection for our feelings. And we're to wear, this is what we looked at last time, the helmets of the hope of salvation, which is protection for the mind. Now, you'd have thought that that would be enough. That if we're living in such a way uh, that we are alert, that we are clothed in the armor of God, then surely we should take encouragement from that. And yes, we can take encouragement from that. And that's one way of assuring ourselves that we're Christians. We can look and see the fruit of the spirits. We can see the graces of God, and it can encourage us. But sometimes we can't see that. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Rabbi Duncan. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Scot, and his real name was John, John Duncan. And he had such knowledge of the Hebrew language that they nicknamed him Rabbi. And he was a minister. And he was 
a godly man, one of the godliest people uh, in the history of the church. Uh, let me tell you how godly he was. Uh, one pastor thought that Rabbi Duncan was overseas, and in his prayer, he had his eyes shut, this pastor, he was aware of a spiritual liberty, and he realized Rabbi Duncan must be in this meeting because he's changing the spiritual temperature. And lo and behold, after he'd finished praying, he opened his eyes, and there was Rabbi Duncan. Those who were students of Rabbi Duncan, they wrote about him. There, pointing to Rabbi Duncan, they didn't say this to his face, but this is what they wrote, there is the best evidence of Christianity. Can people say that of you and me? There is the best evidence of Christianity, and the best evidence that there is such a thing as living personal godliness. There is a man who walks closely with God, who knows what it is to enjoy the light of his countenance. He had such a close walk with God, he enjoyed the light of the face of Jesus Christ shining upon him. What did Rabbi Duncan think of himself? If you would have asked Rabbi Duncan, Rabbi Duncan, have you got spiritual graces? Rabbi Duncan, what's the fruit of the Spirit in you? He would have shaken his head and said, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Do you know what happened once? Rabbi Duncan had a mission in his church. And in those days, they would have people coming to the fronts at the end if they'd been convicted. So they had the anxious seats. So they had a lot of people at the end of this mission who wanted to know how to be saved. And do you know what happened? Amongst those people was the minister himself, Rabbi Duncan. So what am I trying to say? I'm saying this. Yes, we can be assured that it'll be all right for us on the day of judgment because we are genuinely saved by us looking to see if there's evidence of spiritual life, spiritual graces. But sometimes as in Rabbi Duncan's case, and I think if you've got a certain temperament, you may struggle to have assurance by looking within. It doesn't help. But what Paul is doing at the end of this section is he's taking us away from being prepared, from being alert, from being rightly clothed in the armor of God, which are all important things, and he's getting us to look out of ourselves. So the verse tonight, for God did not appoint us, verse 9, to wrath, but to obtain salvation. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, do you really want to be assured of your standing on that day of judgment? Do you really want to have an assurance that's not going to be up and down because you're looking within? Then what you've got to do, my friends, is look without. And I want you to look at these pillars. Th those pillars are never going to be moved. It doesn't matter how you feel. And there are four pillars tonight. And we'll look at two tonight and two next Sunday, God willing. The four pillars are, and these are objective truths. Uh, as uh, uh, I think one film has it. Uh, these are facts. Facts. You can't change facts. What are they? We have been saved from wrath. Salvation from wrath. 
salvation through Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Third pillar, salvation to life with Christ, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Christ. And fourth pillar, salvation by God's grace. God has not appointed us to wrath. So the first pillar, are, are you going to be looking outside of yourself tonight? What's the first pillar? Salvation from God's wrath. I think God is bringing us. Last Sunday morning, Nathan preaching about the wrath of the Lamb. This morning, looking at uh, being saved uh, from judgment. And this evening, here it is again. We are saved from the righteous anger of God. I wonder sometimes if we are not as grateful as we should be as believers because we don't realize what we've been saved from. Now, it wasn't like that in the Bible. Uh, you have in the Old Testament, don't you, uh, the emphasis on the wrath of God. Uh, some people uh, who are not Christians will say, ah, you've got the Old Testament that talks about an angry God and all those terrible things that happened. And then you come to the New Testament and it's all about God is love. No, there is as much in the New Testament about the wrath of God as the Old Testament. Jesus Christ mentioned hell more than heaven. And in uh, Revelation, we have even the wrath of the Lamb. And the Lamb is Jesus Christ. So we mustn't think of God as being different in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God is the same. God is the Father of lights in whom there is neither variableness neither shadow of turning. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So even in Thessalonians, we've had mention of being saved from the wrath of God. In chapter 1, uh, verse 10, we have been told uh, that uh, God sent his Son from heaven, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. So do we realize what we've been saved from and that the day of judgment will be the great and terrible day of the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, who came as a saviour 2,000 years ago, he came in obscurity, he will come back publicly, and he will come back not as a saviour, but as a judge. And people will seek to hide from the wrath of the Lamb, they will run to the hills, and they will cry to the rocks, cover us! From the anger of God. Listen to J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians of the middle of the last century. The wrath of God isn't God losing his temper, that sinful anger on our parts. The wrath of God isn't God being sadistic, that's a human perversion of the wrath of God. The wrath of God isn't God being capricious. What's capricious? Changeable. Some people, they are kind with you one day and then the other day, they lose their temper with you. God isn't like that. Oh no, this is what Packer says. The wrath of God is the righteous anger, the right reaction of moral perfection in the creator toward moral perversity in the creature. Do you get that? God is of purer eyes, says the Bible, than to behold iniquity. 
So the wrath of God is his righteous reaction to what is impure. Can I give this example? We are created in the image of God. Even if it's a fallen world, it's a moral universe, is it not? When I was in Jerusalem, I visited the Holocaust Museum. I, I couldn't stand it in there. It was too overwhelming. The atrocities that happened in the 20th century, especially the Holocaust, no one would say that there is no such thing as judgment. The moral universe and even fallen humanity, fallen liberal, God-denying humanity will still cry out for justice. So this is what we mean by the wrath of God. It's the judge of all the earth doing right. Let me give you another example, again from the Second World War. I can't remember which pilot, but one of the pilots that flew one of the planes that bombed one of the Japanese cities, either Hiroshima or Nagasaki, he was racked by guilt afterwards. Now, you could have said to that chap, look, it was a war. If you hadn't done that, more lives would have been lost, and that would have been true. But this person was still paralyzed by a guilty conscience and he went around different churches he wanted to hear something that would pacify his guilt and you know what he said he said one thing i could not cope hearing was god forgiving people i i just could not handle that because i had this sense of guilt and the guilt of my sin was crying out for justice to be done. And he was on to something there, I think. And then one day he went to a certain Westminster chapel. Have you heard of it? And there was a certain Welshman called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Heard of him? And he was preaching the gospel. And yes, he was preaching God forgiving sin, but not in terms of God sweeping it under the carpets, but God in his justice dealing with sin. And I don't know if that pilot was converted, but he noted the difference. Another great theologian, one of the greatest theologians of the 19th century, B.B. Warfield, American, he wrote this, Paul is impressed with the fact that the wrath of God hangs imminent over mankind and that the great dark cloud of sin rests over the entire world it is because of this sense of sin that the need of salvation looms so big in his mind that it is such good news such glad tidings to the hearts that jesus is our deliverer from the wrath to come now sitting in my flats on the fifth floor on Penarth Heights, I look southwest. Prevailing winds come from the southwest. And if during the summer there's going to be a thunderstorm, it will usually come up the Bristol Channel. And I get a wonderful view. 
You can see the clouds gathering. It might be a bright day at first. It might be sunny, but then come the middle of the afternoon, it gets heavier, and then it gets darker, and the clouds, those cumulonimbus clouds, begin to build up. And before the end of the afternoon, it's a thunderstorm. The gathering clouds. Now, that's nothing compared to the storm that will happen on the day of God's judgment. Let me give you a better example. Uh, we were all, weren't we, horrified by what happened. It was just before I started in the ministry here in this church in 2005, the tsunami in Southeast Asia. I think uh, Kerry, uh, Susanna was over there, wasn't she? And uh, did, did you see the uh, newsreels afterwards? Uh, people uh, on holiday in Thailand, uh, people just being tourists. If there's anything uh, that's paradoxical, it's tourists having to face this huge tidal wave unlike anything we've ever witnessed. And the carnage, and without warning, uh, the destruction. That, that, that's going to be a storm in a teacup on the day of God's wrath. One of the greatest cataclysmic events this planet has ever seen was in the days of Noah, the flood. And not only were there tsunamis, I believe there would have been tsunamis then, but not only did the heavens open, but the earth beneath opened. Uh, I believe the crust uh, would have uh, broken and uh, there would have been lava and there would have been floods and uh, the earth would have nearly been destroyed unless God had stayed his hand. But that was just dress rehearsals for the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Can you see what Warfield is saying, what Paul is emphasizing here? To be saved from the storm is the best news ever. Uh, think of the tsunami coming across Southeast Asia. There's no point running to your hotel. The hotel doesn't have enough floors. Not in Thailand. Not in the beach resorts. What about running to the hills? If you can run fast enough, yes. But on the day of judgment, it'll be no use. It was no use for people to run to the hills in Noah's flood. There was no hill high enough to escape from the judgment of God. And there's not going to be a hill high enough there's not going to be a place in the universe where we can run away. But one. In Noah's day, there was only one place you could escape to the ark. And there's only one place. And the ark is a picture of it. Jesus Christ. The other picture is the one we've been singing about. On the rock of ages standing. Still standing. So, this, this realization that I'm saved from wrath should fill our hearts with thankfulness. Think of people in the ark. It was only Noah and his family. Think how cozy it would have been for them. Do you, do you think they would have looked within to find comfort there? They didn't need to. They were safe in the ark. If I was in the ark, I would have done this to check the wood, to, to see if it was solid enough. No need to have done that. 
It was built by God, wasn't it? Noah built it, but God was the architect. Can you see what I'm trying to say? How, how can I be assured of my standing on the day of judgment? You, do, you don't have to look for evidences of grace. There's a place to do that. But Paul isn't interested in that now. What you want to do is check the ark. Check the walls of salvation. Do you want to check the walls of salvation? Uh, some of us live in new houses, new builds. Uh, you've got to be careful when you do that to the walls in new builds because they're not that thick. But t I'll tell you, the walls of salvation are solid. They're solid. The flames of judgment can't get through. It doesn't matter how I feel. As a Welshman, it doesn't matter if I'm down. That doesn't change. The walls of Jesus Christ. And should it surprise us that so few people are interested in Christianity these days? We've got a gospel light. If you haven't got the wrath of God, you've emptied the gospel of its need. The wrath of God gives a weighty message. That's what we need, my friends. We don't need Christianity lights. We need the real thing, don't we? So, are you in the ark? Don't look within. Just run to Jesus Christ on the rock of ages, hiding. Do you feel frail? Good. Lead, Lord Jesus, my frail spirit to that rock so strong and high. So that's the first pillar. We've got to rush to the next one. The second pillar is not only are we saved from God's wrath, but we're saved through Christ's death. Verse 9 again. God did not appoint us to wrath. Isn't that wonderful? But to obtain salvation. Shouldn't we be running around the place not just warning people about the wrath to come, but telling people that there's salvation from it, even if they don't want to listen. It didn't change Noah, did it? Noah carried on preaching, carried on building the ark. Let us do that as well. And then it's salvation through Christ's death. Christ died for us. What a wonderful phrase. Christ died for us. Now, we don't agree with everything he wrote, but one of the greatest minds in the 20th century in the church was Karl Barth. And he was asked once, this big intellect, he was asked, what's the biggest word in the Bible? Well, what's the greatest word for you in the Bible? And everybody was imagining him saying something like, Propitiation uh, or redemption. Do you know what he said? Hooper. Did you catch that? Hooper. It's a Greek word, and it's a Greek word not for a word, but for a proposition. It's a Greek word for four. I'm sounding complicated here, aren't I? Let me show you in the text. Who died, Christ who died, hooper us. For. He died for you. For me. Do you know what hooper means? It means in the place of. 
instead of, on behalf of. We know the story, don't we? I was preaching it this morning. The old, old story. What did Jesus achieve on the cross? The innocent dying for the guilty on behalf so that he could take the wrath of God upon himself in order that we might be reconciled to God. Now, when I finish Judges in the Bible study, I'm hoping God willing to look at Bible doctrines. So let me just use some doctrinal terminology. Do you know what this is? Penal substitutionary atonements. That'll get you going on a Sunday evening, won't it? Penal substitutionary atonements. What does that mean? Penal, paying the legal fine, the legal penalty. So Jesus on the cross paid the debts. Substitutionary, that's easy, isn't it? It happens in a soccer match. A substitute represents a failing player, takes his place. Atonement to bring us back to God, at one with God, reconciled to God. But this is my point. It's good to know that theological term, but... I can't imagine, let me give you an example, uh, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas was a guilty criminal and on that Good Friday morning he was fully expecting to be put to death and then when the footsteps of the Roman soldiers came to his cell and when the door was opened instead of leading him to his death they said you're free, somebody else has taken your place, they're going to take your debts. Now, I can imagine Barabbas feeling liberated and running around Jerusalem. Would Barabbas have been going around saying, there's been a penal substitutionary atonement for me? I don't even know what that is in Aramaic. Of course he wouldn't. I think he would have passed Golgotha and he would have looked at the man on the middle cross and he would have said, that should have been me. That should have been me. That's penal substitutionary atonements. Tis I deserve the place. But wonder of wonders. He died for me. For me. Didn't Wesley get that? Well, he couldn't fully fathom it. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God should die. Hooper for me. Can you see why Hooper is the best word in the Bible? Ha, have you realized what Hooper is? Can you say Hooper? Not just say it out loud, but do you appropriate Jesus Christ? Do you say, yes, it was for me he suffered so that I don't have to suffer judgments? It's so simple. Now that's why the hymn we sang, that hymn of top ladies, as I'm winding to a conclusion, is one of the greatest hymns in the English language. Incidentally, it's not just the old hymns. Uh, one of the reasons why we're introducing this church to Stuart Townend and Keith Getty is because they are strong on this. Do you know... Stuart Townend wrote these words, till on the cross as Jesus died. What happened? Just a demonstration of love? No. The wrath of God 
was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Now, that's brilliant. Do you know some people put pressure on Townend to get rid of the phrase, the wrath of God, there? To his credit, he stood his ground. But this is how you get assurance, not from looking at your graces. Think of Rabbi Duncan, who couldn't see anything there. But looking at what Jesus Christ has done. I've been saved from eternal wrath because of Hooper, Jesus dying for me. So you speak to yourself. Do you? I don't want you to think of me going around the house and walking the streets of Penarth just talking to myself. But we've got to talk to ourselves in our minds. So say to yourself, in the words of Augustus, top lady, from whence this fear and unbelief? Why am I anxious? Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me, Hooper? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me now for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Top lady goes on, complete atonements thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid. Whate'er thy people owed, Christ has paid for your sins down to the last. How then can wrath on me take place? God would be unjust to punish you if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood. What are these walls like? They're solid, my friend. Your feelings will be up and down, but the walls of salvation are rock solid. Praise be to his name. Uh, Thessalonians is Paul's earliest letter, so you've got an embryo here, what he later develops. So let me give one of the best examples of Hooper, and then I'll be done. We're looking forward to hearing Caleb. He says, moreover, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first that which I also received. Christ died, Hooper, for our sins, not according to your feelings, but according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what the God who cannot lie promises to you and me for his name's sake.